This is the Education Gadfly Show. Burn and, and burn it. Not naming anybody, any name. So far, it's been up three days and nobody's going it. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. Now, please help me in welcoming our special guest for this week, Timothy Daly. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Tim has has had so many interesting jobs in education over the years, including heading up TNTP uh, for a stint. He is now the co-founder and CEO of Ed Navigator. He is a return guest, and it is great to have you back, Tim. Also joining us, our regular co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Good to be here. Thanks for being on, David. We were just chatting about your poor family out in Oregon, hoping that they are doing okay. Terrible seeing what's happening out there in the West Coast. Uh, a lot of crazy stuff happening in our in our worlds. But Tim, we are here to talk about a happier subject, uh, which is a super cool project that you and some others got uh, stood up for this summer called Camp Kinda. Let's talk about it in Ed Reform Update. Now, Tim, look, I'll be honest, we of course wanted to have you on earlier uh, this year, well, really during the summer, while Camp Kinda was up and running, but you were busy running a summer camp. So I still wanted to have you on, though, because I'm so curious about what you guys did and if there are some lessons for how all those schools out there that are still doing remote learning. Certainly, there's been a lot of talk about how schools can do the academic piece better than they did back in the spring. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. they could try, uh, (laughs) like uh, they seem to in a lot of places. Uh, But also, look, how how can we meet some of the broader needs that that, that kids have? We know that schools play a lot of roles. You know, I was on a, a PTA email earlier today trying to decide if we were going to do the uh, elementary school dance virtually or if mm-hmm. we should just cancel it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. these are the sorts of things we got to figure out. So I am curious what we can learn from Camp Kinda, what you guys were able to do, how it worked, and, and what do you think the lessons are? So, Tim, the floor is yours. Great. Uh, well, so the, the beginning of this story is that when the pandemic started, we began sending a, an email every day called One Great Thing for Tomorrow to parents. It was just a simple newsletter people could sign up for. It, and it ran every day, every weekday from mid-March until Memorial Day. And, and in the process of, of sending it, we realized that parents were very anxious and desperate for uh, about what was going to happen in the summer. Late March, early April, most parents thought, that maybe the school year was going to get canceled, but they anticipated that over the summer, their kids would be playing sports, going to sleepaway camp, going to day camp. They thought swimming pools were going to be open. And, um, and so we started to ask ourselves, what happens if it doesn't go that way? And instead of having a few hours a day where school might send work for kids to do, that instead parents were out of the frying pan and into the fire where they, they have their kids on their hands, they're trying to work, but they have maybe nothing for their kids to do. We thought also that even if there were some activities out there available, a lot of families were under economic constraints, hourly workers who were not getting the hours that they normally got. Uh, we do a lot of work in New Orleans, as you guys know, where the hospitality industry you know, basically ceased to exist overnight. All of these hotels that normally host big conventions and events like Jazz Fest that all of a sudden uh, you know, had, had none of those things. So the, the initial discussions around camp kind of were about creating some kind of a stopgap, honestly, for, for families that were going to be in a really difficult position. And in you know kind of mid-April or late April, we huddled internally and said, if we do this, we have to really do this. Like taking on 13 weeks of summer programming for three or four hours a day 
for kids in ages kindergarten through eighth grade and trying to stand that up maybe a little more than a month's notice um, is just a huge undertaking. One of my co-founders at, at Navigator, uh, David Keeling, kind of made the case that we had to do it. We all have kids that were kind of in, in these age ranges. And so he stepped up and, and led it and just did an incredible job. So it was definitely the last half of April when we said, you know, this is going to happen. We opened registration on Wednesday, May 20th, and we had our first programming um, sent out on Sunday, May 31st. So it all happened really quickly. Oh my God. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible, Tim. It's really amazing. And to do that much programming, I mean, my goodness. I mean, I, some of us on the show maybe have worked at summer camps in the past. <laughs> that is a long stretch of time you're talking about and a big age group as well. So uh, I assume you had a lot of takers, a lot of people signing up. What, what were you able to do? I'm curious. I mean, and it, and it was camp, right? It wasn't academic tutoring per se, right? Fun stuff mostly and, and sort of social emotional learning stuff. Yeah, so I, I'll give you a sense of, of how we set it up. And the, the content uh, process was led by our chief program officer, Whitney Henderson, who went out and found 13 different curators for the individual week. So every single week was a different theme, which a lot of people recognize from their own camp experiences. And those range from things like history's mystery. So that week we were doing pyramids and the Bermuda Triangle and Stonehenge. And then the next week after that was movie making magic. So kids learned how Pixar movies are made, for example, or how stop um, motion animation is done or how special effects are done. The week after that, I think was wild weather. So they learned about not only crazy weather events on earth, but like weather events in outer space. Um, and so every week had a different curator who provided the content. And then with each day, there was a different theme. And within that theme, we usually did a combination of what we called um, explore, which was to get kids into it quickly, they would watch a couple of videos on YouTube 10 minutes, five minutes kind of length of things. And they would spend an hour immersing themselves in a topic. Some of those things were passages that they would read aloud or they would read online or things that they would listen to. That, that was where most of the screen time was. We wanted to make it very easy for parents to get their kids into it uh, for the day and to be able to then focus on younger siblings or, or their own work. And then there was a create section. So kids were making sundials. They were making, um, they were doing craft things. We were very specific with our curators that we didn't want any super messy crafts that had millions of pieces that just made a big mess for parents to clean up. So we had, we had to be very specific. And we were also sensitive to not wanting parents to have to go out and buy a bunch of stuff just for this. So we tried to keep it economical. Uh, then there was a whole section just about reading. So once we got the kids to the point where they were really interested in a topic and they were kind of motivated on it, there were different reading passages for kids of different ages. And for the kindergarten, first and second graders, we had not only modified reading passage, passages, but there'd be a little yellow balloon that for the younger kids signaled that that was for them. So the little ones knew uh, to click on the things that had the yellow balloon. We tried to incorporate physical movement. So every single day there was some kind of exercise piece to it where kids would either be doing an online workout or they'd you know, be instructed to take a walk and look for different sorts of things. Um, and, and then we had um, what we called a more to explore section, which kind of was, if this turns out to be something that you are really into, here's like five more things that you can do. So for the parent where they kind of needed the, the child to be occupied for as long as possible, they would be able to, to do those things as well. And then we had a couple of things for parents. So every night, parents would have a question to ask the kids about what they did that day that we would feed the parents. And then there was a question for dinner time for families to discuss together. Oh my God, it sounds so good. A lot. Can, can people go back, by the way, and do, <laughs> and, and do these on on you know every Saturday or you know on the weekends yeah. or is, you know? 
Yeah. So right now, all 13 weeks are still up there. There's 65 individual days. They're all available at campkinda.org. So yes, right right now people can do that. You asked Mike about, about the uptake on it, and we were totally surprised and overwhelmed by the number of people that participated. So to register for Camp Kinda just meant you go to a website and put in your email address. And if you do that every day, you would get the, that day's content emailed to you. We had over 42,000 families that registered uh, to wow. do that. They were in all 50 states. Um, I think we had over 100 campers in 35 different states. So they were really widely dispersed. And we had campers in 95 countries. So uh, okay. among the, to- the top mm-hmm. 10 countries that we, we had were Canada. We also had the UK, India, Ireland, Denmark, Ecuador. We have absolutely no idea how folks were hearing about this there, but they were in 18 different time zones. So just to give you a sense, when we we did this thing on the pyramids and we looked it up and we had kids who lived near the pyramids who were in Camp Kinda. When we did the Stonehenge thing, we had we had kids who live in that part of, of England. So it was a lot of fun for us to just see wow. that many families. Uh, and we, you didn't have to register if, if, a, if a, somebody just found the web address and went on there mm-hmm. and wanted to click around and do things. Uh, we had 225,000 um, unique users to the site during the summer. So it was reached a, a big group. That's awesome. Was there anything that you think you learned out of this that would be helpful for teachers who are trying to figure out, you know, how to do stuff like team building, how to do, you know, keep things engaging, not just academically, but otherwise right now. I I know there's been like a lot of great stuff Doug Lamov has been writing about. He's got a book coming out on on online learning, which is great. But from, from your sense, especially some of these softer skills. We learned a couple of things. One is that you have to create programming for parents as well as kids. If, if you are talking about at-home learning, we need to stop talking just about what kids need because you, you, the parent is going to be involved in every transaction. They're going to be there getting kids logged in. If the parent doesn't understand what it is or how to do it, it's not going to work. And one of the things that we were very aware of with Creating Camp Kinda is if parents didn't think it looked interesting, they weren't going to have their kids do it. And so creating content that explained to parents what we were going to have kids do, why we were going to have them do it, how they could uh, change the settings on their web browser so their kids wouldn't see ads that they didn't want them to see, for example. If we couldn't get that stuff right, then parents were going to fall right off. So I think that's really important for teachers to think about. We continue to see a lot of at-home learning efforts by, by school districts that don't take into account that the student has to be a part of every single consideration. And so, so do the parents. Sometimes it's one or the other in either direction. That's, that's um, really smart. David, any questions from your end? I mean, I'll ask the obvious question, Mike. I, I, are you guys going to do this again next summer? Uh, I, I never <laughs> really missed. But. but but David, there's going to be a vaccine available before election day. I don't know what you're yeah, Right. You that's true. We surveyed our families in um, late July. And at that time, most of them thought their schools were going to open, at least in hybrid form. But we, we put this question on there anyway. Uh, what do you think we should do with Camp Kinda? One of the answers was, I still want to receive this during the school year, even if it's less frequent. One answer was, I don't know. And the other people were like, I don't need it anymore. 85% of families said, I still want to get it. We decided that we would modify and extend it into what we're now calling the Kinda Guide, which is a survival guide for parents whose kids are, are at home during the, the pandemic. It will have all 65 days of uh, Camp Kinda will be on there. And then we'll do more content through the, the year, um, fresh things for, say, school breaks when kids are out of school. But we will also um, try and build on that, that lesson I just shared about needing to do programming for parents. 
And there'll be a lot in there that is um, meant to support parents with things like communicating with educators, finding healthy things for kids to do when they're not in online school, and, and frankly, for parents to manage their own mental health, because we just hear over and over again how stretched thin they are. So um, the Kind of Guide will will uh, launch September 27th. It'll be available to anybody who wants to sign up for it. We'll use a donation model so folks can choose to donate to um, underwrite support uh, so other folks can access it. But anybody can access it without making a donation if they're not able to do so. That's awesome, Tim. Hey, one last question. Did, did you have like a funny camp nickname, uh, you know, as, as the grand poobah of this thing? Yeah, that's no, I didn't. We should have done nicknames for, for our camp. That sounds, you know what? Next summer, when we're back mm-hmm. at Camp Kinda again, maybe that's yeah. that's what we'll start with. You know, mine way back when was Abu, which was oh. from Aladdin, which turned out to be really a dumb nickname to have. It, it was a, a camp for pretty tough kids from, from St. Louis, and <laughs> they walked all over me. And I mean, they probably would have walked all over me anyways, but that nickname surely did not help. Uh, so, but, but, you know, another listen to you future camp counselors over there. Choose your nickname carefully. So. Yeah, I can. <laughs> All right. Hey, thanks so much. Uh, Tim, again, Tim leads Ed Navigator and is the co-founder and CEO there, but also one of the creators of Camp Kinda. You can check that out. It's exciting to hear that that is still up and we'll look forward to the uh, Kinda, Kinda Guide. Did I get that right? Kinda uh, Guide, yeah. I'm definitely going to be checking that out very shortly. Thanks again for coming on the show, Tim. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. So exciting. Finally, after a choppy summer, I think we're all together again for the first time in a long time. Great, great to be with you. Yes. I hope, uh, hope the summer treated you all okay. It did, it did. I need to change out my summer wreath and put my fall wreath on the door. <laughs> oh my gosh, you have four wreaths? Is that right? That's I have funny. a wreath for every season. I noticed that my neighbor already has her pumpkin and fall uh-huh. leaf wreath on the door, and I still have my summer one. I'm like, all right, she's pressuring me. You got to get on this, Amber. I got. I got to say, the, the only decor I have in my yard is, well, it's a yard sign that we just won't talk about because we will you not. not or you may have someone come over and and, and burn it. Not uh, naming anybody any name. So far, it's been up three days and nobody's stolen it or uh, you know, said anything nasty. <laughs> you live about in Montgomery it. County, right? <laughs> All right. Amber, what you got for us this week? Uh, We have a new study out from Harvard researchers that examines the impact of political party control on education, finance, and other outcomes. So basically they're asking what difference does it make on K-12 and higher ed and other spending categories when you have Democrats versus Republicans control state legislatures? Just a pretty big question. Okay. Um, they use a regression discontinuity design that is based on close state elections between 1984 through 2013. Close elections are when the majority of the House was determined by fewer than five seats, with each legislature of these determining seats winning with a vote of less than 10 percentage points. I believe you have to meet both of those qualifications to be a close election. They aggregate multiple election results based on the share of seats and vote percentages that Democrats need to secure majority control. So basically, they're estimating the impact of just barely achieving a Democratic majority. Their model includes state fixed effects, election cycle fixed effects. They run a bunch of robustness tests on their assumptions to make sure they're legit and make sense. 
They also make sure that the results aren't driven by substantial changes to school funding formulas under Democrats, which could be a concern. Uh, and they found, you know, no evidence of that. So their key finding is that weekly Democratic states increase higher education, but decrease K-12 funding. Specifically, a weak Democratic majority in the state legislature decreases K-12 state education appropriations by 8%. However, increases in local revenue to K-12 districts largely offset this decrease. So they hypothesize that perhaps policymakers consider the availability of these external resources in making decisions. And when they look at heterogeneous effects, they kind of dig in a little bit more. Those results suggest that Democratic houses in states with higher baseline poverty and with more liberal citizens, and I have no idea how that was measured, uh, but anyhow, higher baseline poverty and more liberal uh, citizens largely drive those effects that I just told you about, where with the decreased K-12 funding and the increase in uh, higher ed funding. And then they also find that Democrats appropriate 6.2% more to higher education overall. So that's just the specific stat. But 10% more, 10.5% more in states where unemployment is higher. So again, uh, they, they, they start looking at the context of the state, the conditions in the state to try to figure out, you know, what may be going on. And so again, they find little evidence that they're like, okay, maybe there's some trade-offs going here on within the education budget. They don't find evidence of trade-offs, but they do hypothesize that Democratic legislators are aware that they can address poverty through health and welfare investments. And maybe that's what's going on. So they're maintaining ed spending in the short term through these local funding sources that are making up the difference. And that, you know, perhaps they're aware that, you know, that the, they can address some of these concerns that we have about poverty through health and welfare investments. Since again, as I mentioned before, the decreases are driven by states with higher baseline poverty rates and more liberal citizens. So that was the big, that was the big finding, you know, so there's some discussion of what does it mean when we have increasing polarization in our elections relative to how the funding formulas may work for education? Do we need to come up with something different whereby they would be more secure? So anyway, there was a large discussion on that that I didn't get into, but that, that was the bottom line. So a little surprising since we tend to think that Democratic legislators would be, would be driving these uh, spending increases. Mm -hmm. well, I, I, I think both David and I uh, have that face on, like you see in the emoji where he's like scratching his chin and, and looking with the squiggly face. We're like, huh, this is, doesn't make any sense at all. Or I, uh, I, even more so, I'm trying to figure out like, where are these states? These sound like they must be purplish states, states uh, right. to qualify, but run by Democrats. But what was the you know, then these higher unemployment, I, I'm kind of picturing like, okay, I think maybe Kentucky I'm picturing maybe fits this, but yeah. And then why would, when the, when the Democrats win, which with support from the unions, surely that they're not increasing spending, it really makes you go, huh? Right. Right. What was the time frame again, Amber? 1984 mm. through 2013. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So that, right. that does make, that makes some sense, right, David? It does it? I don't know. I was going to say, you know, I, I guess it, it, the same comment applies regardless of the time period, but you know, it makes some sense to me, Mike. I mean, insofar as there is more support for something like Medicaid, right in, um on the democratic side that's expensive regardless how you feel about it it is not cheap um and so there could be crowding out there 
Yeah, I don't know. I so, mean, the other question is governors, right? Like, I assume they controlled for that. Mm-hmm. Right? No, no, I guess, I guess with, well, yeah, they must have controlled for it somehow, right? Because it's, it's happening simultaneously in the election. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I think that's right. I mean, and then there's a ton of, you know, David, how the model gets. Yeah. Um, You're not but, on the spot here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think that the timing is important because, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, you know, there were a lot more, first of all, I think there were more purple states, but, and a lot of those were in the South, you know, I mean, when, back when there were plenty of Southern Democrats. So I don't know, I'm now starting to think about, okay, states, they talked about states with high unemployment. Uh, I don't know. It just makes me think that you think, okay, maybe a bunch of those states in the South where there could be close elections, where maybe Democrats come in and they boost higher ed funding and these other kinds of funding rather than education. But these are, conservative Democrats. I don't know. It, it's it's interesting. It's certainly surprising. I mean, it definitely doesn't fit what you'd expect, right, Amber? Um, right. You know, when, when we looked at teacher union strength several years mm-hmm. ago at the state level, you know, I think we were, you know, certainly looked at, expected, kind of assumed that, uh, you know, one sign of teacher union strength was increased spending, right? Uh, And uh, did somebody do a follow-up study using some of our data showing that, yeah, in districts where the teacher unions are stronger, uh, they do succeed in driving higher salaries. Yeah, Um, I didn't see that. Right. And there's no measure of, yeah, there's no measure of union strength in this study, but but that's exactly right. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I, I actually buy it, Mike. I, you sounds like you don't buy it, but I actually do buy it. I think. Uh, I mean, I think there's only so much money, practically speaking, right? Uh, given the the sort of constraints on raising revenue that people face politically and practically, and I, it's interesting the way it works vis a vis higher ed. Um, and the question is, like, are, are politicians really this smart? Right? Like, are they really saying, "Oh, well, they can make up the money locally at." you know, in K-12, but they can't do that in higher ed. So we're going to increase higher ed, but we're not going to increase K-12. Instead, we'll put that money towards, I mean, maybe they aren't that smart. Maybe it's not explicit. Maybe it's just sort of mm-hmm. I mean, and, the emergent and that, effect, obviously, right, I mean, of, of their incentive. How, are there loopholes around the balanced budget amendment requirements? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it seems like, you know, there's, there's some, um, there's some limitations, right, with what they can do on the K-12 side. You would think that it wouldn't have on the higher ed side. Yeah. Very interesting. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there uh, with, with our puzzled look on our faces. <laughs> but still interesting stuff, Amber. Thank you. Yeah. Until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.